you have a seat and close your eyes when you do for a moment and take in a truth. I love to do this myself, and I love to prompt you to do it as well. When we sang the song about um, the, the focus of Paul being on Christ alone, it came straight out of Galatians 2.20, which says simply, but with sweeping implications, I've been crucified with Christ, and it is no longer I who live, but Christ lives in me. That was Paul's statement of departure from the guy he once was. And the second part of that verse, now I live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. So he said goodbye to the past. I've been crucified to all of that. And he said, I will never take my eyes off the path before me. Uh, Christ in me changes everything. So God, we come to you right now as people that, that hear truths like we just sang and we sing them with great feeling and passion because they're songs that are familiar, they're songs that we sense capture more than just a good songwriter's impression and talent because indeed they're based on truth, your truth. But as I so often think, it's not just truth for some saint that lived long ago. It's truth for me to live by today. And as we just sang, Lord, we need your vision. Our world is cloudy and colored. It's broken. It's traumatized by events that are yet unfolding. And no one from any part of this globe fully understands where this is all going to go. And that's why we come to you hungry to hear something from your heart for our hearts that will change everything about the way we live in this world. For your glory. And we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Good morning, church. If you're one of the children heading out the door, have fun and enjoy uh, a great time in kid land. There's always good stuff happening over there. And I'm looking at a, a little one that's been with us all week, and I hope she doesn't get up and leave, too, because um, she is a lively little one and uh, has won our heart. So um, I've warned her parents um, that if she turns up missing, come look at our place, and, um, and they, um, they understand. We have just uh, fallen in love with this dear family that you're going to meet in a, just a little bit. Uh, because uh, not only will Juan uh, uh, be a part of our final song this morning, that, gosh, honey, come on, come on, come on. Here we go. Come on, Melody, here. Come on up. She probably saw me holding a microphone and thought, okay. Yeah? Why did I just do that? <laughs> okay, all right. Um, listen, and she makes her way up here, sure, um, uh, later, um, in a little bit, oh man, let's play, let's get out the toys, so we've had a blast all week long, and you can see some of it here, we, uh, I've, I've never been called grandpa until this week, and it's really, really special, and Debbie is grandma, so, um, all in Spanish, of course, so it's, it's really been a lot of fun. So I want to I jump into what's in front of you and me in God's Word. Kelly, I loved how you framed it. There are so many truths that are popping out here in the final stretch of this series on Acts, the uh, In Step with, with the Spirit series. We mean every word in that. It's a step-by-step -step thing. Galatians 5, Paul said, walk. How do we walk? One step after another in the Spirit. Uh, but it's true, too, that it's a walk of the Spirit. It's the Holy Spirit 
uh, hearing person by person. It's not done for a whole church at one time. It's done by individuals that say, I'll let you lead the way, Lord. He said 87 times, follow me. How do you do that? One step at a time. And, and, and how does it turn out? Any way the Holy Spirit wants it to turn out. And it's really kind of a, an adventure at, a, at the next level for sure. Uh, but I'd have you look at your notes because they capture today's title, which um, how many of you have already looked up the word that I used in the title of my message? Anybody? How many knew what the word moxie means? Okay, so um, for the few of you that may wonder, is it a new cosmetic line? <laughs> That's not, is, is not the case. Uh, or maybe you thought, you know, I've felt this already. I'm out of touch with the latest music groups, and maybe this is a new rock band. You know, come and watch Moxie in concert kind of sounds cool. Um, but it's not, not that either. In fact, you, if you go back to the early 1900s, you will see that it actually is the name of America's first favorite soft drink. I know Coca-Cola showed up before that, but when Moxie showed up, it like changed the world briefly. And in fact, on the label of a can of Moxie soda pop are two words, nerve food. Now you're on to something. I, I su suspect it meant a couple of things. One, take a swallow of this and your nerves will be lit up somehow. But, but more figuratively is the meaning that I meant. So I did some search. Moxie, uh, the word, actually retained a, a long list of important meanings. In fact, they're all positive. So that's something for you to kind of digest. Moxie is cool, and hopefully by the time we're done with this message, you're going to say, I want moxie. In fact, you may make it a prayer. Lord, give me moxie. So here's some of the um, continuing the meanings of the word. Energy. How many would like just a couple of scoops of that every so often, all right? Pep. Vigor. That's at one level. Moxie also means courage and determination. And here's the word, nerve. Well, you feel nerve that says, I, I'm not going to cave. I'm not going to capitulate. I'm not going to run and hide. That's, that's moxie. And then con competency, proficiency, and um, savvy. I like the word savvy, too. Um, so I'm going to give you just something to do. I like to do this in the afternoon today, maybe, while it's fresh. Have a little conversation with your family or your friends or a life group and maybe go deeper in the word moxie. What's it mean? And ask the simple question, hey, do you see me as a person that's got some moxie going? And then be more personal than that. Ask yourself that question. Do I have moxie? Some of those things that I just mentioned. So as we've studied this book, of the Bible for over a year now, the book of Acts, Acts of the Apostles, or we've called it Acts of the Holy Spirit because he's at work in every page of this book. Um, several people, as I started to think through this filter, several people started popping up. Immediately, we would all say in the book of Acts, chapter 2, on the day of Pentecost, Peter steps up. Keep in mind, what happened on the day of Pentecost in chapter 2 had never happened before, okay? So people weren't, weren't, weren't expecting it. They had no sense that there was this wind coming, and it would come with a roar, and it would touch and impact everybody in Jerusalem and the surrounding area, but it did. And on that day, Peter steps up, and grabs the mic and says, let me tell you what just happened. And he's telling largely a Jewish audience, but people from all over about the Holy Spirit coming. Peter that day gets the prize of moxie. And he's the first one, I think, in the book that steps up. But you don't have to read long before you come to chapter 7, 
and the first martyr named Stephen. Remember him in front of the Sanhedrin? And, and the further he went in his presentation of Jesus, the more enraged his audience became. Do you remember from your, just your memory what he did? Run and hide? Phone a friend? What did he do? He gets this glow on him that says, okay, now we're going places. And, and the glow went all the way to when they finally silenced him by throwing rocks, stoning, stoning him to death. So you got Peter, you definitely have Stephen, and then probably we would all agree uh, no one's modeled moxie more than the Apostle Paul. And uh, he, in my judgment, seems to have moxie in spades. We're not done with his story. But today in chapter 25, I'd like you to locate that. My Bible's turned to that chapter. There's only two, uh, a few more chapters. After today, it'll be three chapters, and we're done with this wonderful journey, um, at least the study of it. But we're going to answer the question, where did Paul get such moxie? Um, so let's jump in right where we left off last week. You'll recall that Festus um, was the replacement governor of Felix. Felix was in charge, and um, when he finally left office, Festus stepped in. And the text indicates that he was a man of action. As opposed to Felix, who left Paul in prison for two years, doing nothing about his case. Only Festus steps up, and almost immediately he moves into gear and begins to examine a long-pending case against the Apostle Paul. So there's a change of leadership in government, and on his third day, Festus uh, travels to Jerusalem. And when he got to Jerusalem, he went there for the specific express purpose of addressing Paul's accusers. Keep in mind, Paul's over at the coastal city of Caesarea, and Festus travels 75 miles south and east to Jerusalem. And while there, he thinks, I'm going to take care of this. This is still on the pending docket, and it needs to be remedied and resolved now. So let's read on verse uh, 1. We'll pick up where we're, where we're starting today. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented their charges, fairly cool charges, if you think. I mean, cool in the sense they've cooled off. They're not filled with rage necessarily, or one would expect. They bring their charges against Paul, and they requested Festus as a favor to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, where they were preparing an ambush to kill him along the way. So their purpose was not uh, laudable in any fashion. Festus answered, Paul is being held in Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me. We'll travel back to where he's being held. And if the man has done anything wrong, they can bring charges against him there. So a little over a week, this moves quickly. Festus returns to Caesarea and commences this long overdue hearing. It begins in verse 6. After spending eight or ten days with them in Jerusalem, he travels to Caesarea. The next day he convenes court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, look what happened. The Jews who had come down from Jerusalem circled around him. I've tried to put myself in that spot, and you feel, what's the word when you look everywhere and, and you've got enemies that's surrounding you, right? You, you feel trapped. So they surround him, and they bring up many serious charges against him, but they couldn't prove any of them. Then Paul made his defense. I have done, look at these words in verse 8, I have done Nothing wrong against the Jewish people. I make a list here in verse 8. The temple or against the Roman government, Caesar. I've done nothing wrong. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favor, said to Paul, so are you willing to then go up to Jerusalem? 
and stand trial before me there on these charges? Paul answered, I am now standing before Caesar's court. Remember, he's in Caesarea, where I ought to be tried. I've done nothing wrong to the Jews. Ask yourself, as yourself rather, know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving of death. In other words, if your investigation reveals something that hasn't come out yet, um, I'm willing not only to be convicted, but he says, I, I don't refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, then no one has the right to hand me over to them. And then he says, I appeal to Caesar. Uh, remember, I described, we've done in previous weeks, Felix um, left Paul uh, incarcerated, limited freedom in Caesarea. Let's call that a, uh, Felix frozen. Couldn't do anything. Couldn't go outside of a permitted little area in the town, in the city. And so here Festus, the next governor, I'm going to say verse 12, he had a chance to shine and he didn't. In my opinion, he covers it nicely so we don't see it easily. But after Festus conferred with his council, he declares, you've appealed to Caesar, to Caesar you will go. If you're Festus, you just kick the can down the road. You came here to fix something that had been two years left alone, and you passed. He said, oh, okay, all right, well, I talked to my um, inner circle, and they advised me to send you to Rome, and to Rome you will go. So in a few days, Agrippa arrives to pay an official visit. This is the change point in the story. Agrippa was a governor. He's known here as King Agrippa. He was from another area of jurisdiction for Rome. And he arrives for an official visit to more or less um, cozy up to and um, applaud the new placement of this governor, Festus. So Agrippa shows up, and he, um, in this setting, takes advantage of um, an opportunity to hear the story against Paul. So look on as we read. We're going to finish chapter 25 very quickly and then draw some conclusions. A few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice, I'll save you some details, but if you're fascinated to do some research, uh, best we can tell, he's her sister. He's, he, uh, she's his sister. Um, though um, it would appear uh, it's very kinky and weird, okay? So I'll just leave it at that. Um, one thing for sure, if uh, they were husband and wife, it's really bad. But anyway, um, and they come to Caesarea to pay their respects. This is Agrippa now. Since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, there's a man here whom Felix, previous governor, left as prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, chief priests and the elders and the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them that it's not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they face their accusers and have an opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. Sounds like a court in our country. That's in our Constitution. I, I didn't consult with my attorneys before I said that. Verse 17, when they came here with me, I did not delay the case, but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes that I had expected. Instead, they had some points of dispute. If you could see me closely, I've got a wrinkled brow right now. They, they brought up points of dispute with him about their own religion, and look at his knowledge base here, and about a dead guy named Jesus, who Paul claimed was alive. This is the king. This is who, who lived in the time, or was at least aware of, the person that's changed our lives. And that's the best he can come up with. I was at a loss how to investigate 
such a matter. So I asked if he would be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over for the emperor's decision, that would be a trip to Rome, I ordered him held until I could send him to Caesar. Then Agrippa said to Festus, all right, because all that came from Festus. Um, all right, all right, Festus, I want, I want to hear him myself. And that was arranged for the next day. And it came. And it happened to be the day of pageantry when Bernice and Agrippa stood up and all this fanfare. And, um, and then he, uh, Festus orders that Paul be brought in, chained, and announces the case involving Paul to the king. And he does so in front of everyone. There's a, there's, a, there's a contrast here that might be interesting for you to ponder. Here's these, these pomp and circumstance high-ranking officials. And here's the Apostle Paul who comes in in chains. And this is what was said. Next day, Agrippa and Bernice came in with great pomp and, and in, entered the auditorium room. Um, and there was high-ranking military officers and a bunch of prominent people of the city. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man. The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he not be allowed to live any longer. I found he's done nothing deserving of death, but because he's made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty, referring to the emperor, about him. Therefore, I brought him here before all of you. Could have been a private meeting, but for other purposes, perhaps, it's out in public. And especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. You can tell I read fast. I, I have to confess I did not read near as fast when I studied this deeply. I spent time and I came upon a question. I'm going to ask it as a question for you to consider your answer. Why are we being told these details that describe what is now more than a two-year-old delay in the adjudication of allegations against Paul? Is there something to see in Felix, the outgoing governor, or in Festus, the, the new arrival, or or what? My answer would be to that question, not really. Uh, both were cut. Felix and Festus were both cut from, best I can tell, uh, the same cloth. Both are political figures. Uh, both, we kind of have this sense, um, led, ruled with a mixture of motives. Some of it for sure was to keep peace. Some of it was to garner favor with the people. You want to win their approval, making your rule uh, easier. And, and let's just add a third. They unlikely, both of them, Felix and Festus, were very intent on not making a mistake that could uh, certainly cost them their jobs and even worse, their lives. That's how Rome did things. You messed up, you're going to pay up, sometimes with your life. So maybe that was going on, but um, I want to I have you imagine a grade you would give both Felix and Festus. I chose B minus, maybe C plus. And they're not awful, awful, uh, but they're certainly not resolute, decisive, quality, um, committed to truth. Uh, in fact, you'll, I think you'll agree that, uh, by the way, I'm an easy grader, so maybe you give them a B or an F or an A. Um, let's turn to the other player in all of this, Agrippa. 
same questions, is there something to be noted in the arrival of Agrippa? Uh, again, not really. I mean, he seemed as reasonable as you'd expect a king to be. Hey, I want to hear it myself. No offense, Festus, but I want to have my own ears, my own eyes, see the accuser. And he did so. Um, but I would say this of him. Like Festus, Agrippa valued peace over justice. Someone has said that Festus was to Paul what Pilate was to Jesus. That got my attention, man, right there. And and what do they have in common? Both of them sent them to judgment to keep the peace while they were in it. Think about that. Puts them on the same page. So then, back to my question. What are we supposed to see? It's one of those chapters in our study, I thought, Lord, how does this treat? How does this connect to people today? What, what are we supposed to notice? And I want to tell you, in a very decisive moment in my deep dig, I felt like um, there was this, uh, this sense that I needed to, um, I'm, I'm looking widely, I'm zooming out, and I'm not seeing it. And then I found myself going, so get in close. What is there about Paul amidst all of this that we're supposed to see? And that took me, I think, into a very fruitful place. You remember last week, if you were here in uh, chapter 24, uh, we said of Paul, who sat in a prison for 730 days, two years, we said of Paul, that he lived out the principle, bloom where you're planted. Okay, he didn't get dark. He did not get depressed as far as we knew. I don't know. He did not get angry and vengeful. He was resolute. He sat. We have no indication what he said to anybody while those two years slowly evaporated. I don't do well on an airplane when it's stuck at the gate and hasn't pushed back yet. In about 20 minutes, I'm about, I, has anybody flirted with the idea of what would happen if you just pulled that slide? And I know you'd have a bunch of friends on the flight because I'm not the only guy thinking this is in, this is crazy delay. But I'd probably go to jail, I'm pretty sure. But uh, so I've never done it, but. Um, and it bothers me mostly because no one's saying anything. Just tell us something. Presumably, we do, we do not have God recording in his eternal word anything of those two years. So it drew me even closer. As I continue to really kind of at this point stare at Paul, who was surrounded by slow-moving pieces that were, I said it last week, and I'll hold to it, that were in the way of fulfilling God's promise to Paul that he would eventually preach the gospel in Rome. Several things started to emerge in this chapter. And admittedly, they took me beyond just what we've read, but they're here too. And they took me to several principles, practices of Paul um, that, that make him a man of moxie and give you and me maybe a, a, a sense of how to grow moxie and build moxie in the way Paul did. So I just see a couple of them I'll mention, and maybe three if we have time, but it, they'll move quickly. The first one, knowing God was with him, Put steel in Paul's spine. You can't, can't miss that. I did. It took me a while to get there. But knowing God was with him, put steel in his spine. What, what does that mean? It's, it's the opposite of spineless. 
You'd be tempted numerous times to go, hey, hey, bring, bring the guy in charge. Let's work out a deal. Remember we read last week, they kept inviting Paul to bribe them. It would be a very real temptation. You know, I could shorten this weight. I could just throw a payola here. But, but he didn't. Um, This idea of stealing your spine is that I'm not going to bend. I will not cave in. I will not be spineless. I will not be weak or cowardly. You know what you will become? A man or a woman of moxie. You've got the steel in your spine that says, I'm not going to bend. Steer in a blizzard time. Let it snow. Let it snow. There's a defiance, not an ugly one, not a, you know, I'm going to get you, I'm going to do this. No. Just, just one that says, hey, I'm not giving in. When Paul was arrested in Jerusalem, and remember when he was carried above the soldier's arms out of, the, out of a very violent scene where there was fear, we're told in the text, that they would tear him apart? In that scene, check out these words because God spoke them to Paul from chapter 23, verse 11. Be encouraged, Paul, just as you have been a witness to me here in Jerusalem, you must preach the good news in Rome as well. That's a sense of God is with him, but he goes on, things, th- things change when we become convinced, even in a prison sitting there forever, that God is with you. Some of you, the prison is a hospital. Some of them, of you hearing this, it's a, it's a marriage. You've prayed sun up to sun down for a change. No change. You're, you're stuck. You, you've done everything you know to do and you're willing to do it again. That may be the prison for you. Um, um, but things in that really almost impossible place become okay. You can manage if you're convinced God is with you. Um, remember the disciples who were directed one night, um, Matthew 14, by Jesus to uh, cross the lake. If you're looking at words here, they were to cross the lake Without Jesus, he went up on the hills to pray. They get in this boat and a terrible storm comes. Matthew reports about 3 o'clock in the morning. I was up at 3 last night. I thought, okay, I'm getting up. I can't. And I look over at my clock and I'm like, 3 o'clock for real? And you know what? You've heard me say this. If you've been here any length of time, one of the hazards of this work is you can almost guarantee you're going to be tested in what you're telling other people. So don't just throw it out to them. Live it yourself. Experience it yourself. So last night, in this little piece of it, it was 3 in the morning for me. Could not sleep. And you might say, well, what were you thinking about? All kinds of dark things. Painful injuries. Um, memories that you wish you could erase. Yeah, your pastor just said that. You, you, you have those moments? Um, I have a friend that actually has a whole theology built around 3 a.m. So it uh, really does. He, he, anyway, I, more detail than you're going to share here. Um, so about 3 in the morning, Jesus came toward them walking on the water. What were they doing? Hey, come on over here. No. When the disciples saw him, they freaked out. They were terrified. In their fear, they cried out, it's a ghost. What would you do at 3 in the morning? But look at how Jesus responded. He spoke to them at once, don't be afraid. And he said, take courage. Here's why don't be afraid. It is I. I am here. How many times do you think Paul heard that in prison? I don't know. Maybe daily. We're not told. You're free to guess. 
I, I'm not sure I want to go with never once. I'm pretty sure it was often. By the way, this whole principle here, um, you get steel in your spine when you know God is there. It came up seven centuries before anything in the New Testament. Isaiah was the one that made it universal. And he spoke for God with these words, Isaiah 41.10. And some of you have memorized them. You should if you haven't. Do not fear. Show of hands before I read it. Don't even keep reading. How many of you have ever felt afraid? Okay. Now you've got options. You can turn on all the lights in the house and maybe the boogeyman will go away. Or you can take some medicine that's prescribed for you in moments like that. Or... You can learn a scripture like this, tuck it away in your heart, and it becomes your words in the middle of the night. You don't have to look for your Bible and squint to find where is Isaiah. He said seven centuries ago, where is that? Do not fear. It's a command. That's how it starts. Do not fear. He's quoting God. For I am with you. Same thing Jesus said coming across the water. Do not fear because I am here. Do not anxiously look about you. I heard a noise. Heard a noise. Squirrel. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Don't. Don't don't anxiously look about you, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Surely I will help you. Surely I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. If I'm going to say some of us need to memorize that and begin quoting it nightly. Does it mean you'll never have a 3 a.m. wake up? I memorized that like 40 years ago, so uh, no, would be my answer. But you got a weapon if you know of another. Amen? It's good. So Paul was convinced of God's presence is what I'm saying, and it shows. When we are convinced of his presence as well, it will put steel in our spines also moxie in me. Next, second principle. I saw it after a while. It took a while, but it really shouldn't have. Living with integrity is the key to living securely. Um, That's what the Apostle Paul repeatedly said in this passage and others before it. If you flip back to chapter 24, Look at verse 16. He says simply, I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. 25, verse 8. Look at these words. We read them already. When Paul made his defense, what did he say? I've done nothing wrong against the Jewish law, against the temple, or against Caesar. Drop down to verse 10. He says further, I've not done any wrong to the Jews as you yourself know very well. Governor Festus, but if I have done something wrong and it escaped my notice, I'm willing to face the music. That's what he says. I'm willing to die for it. I will not refuse to die. It's called integrity. Paul faced the Sanhedrin, Governor Felix, Governor Festus, and Agrippa, and had the conviction to say, will you write this down? Check my record. Check it out. There's a lot of opinions about me right now, Paul could say correctly. And he says, check my record. It's like saying, here's my laptop. Here's my cell phone. Here's the video footage of my private life. That's how it looks today. That's you and me. What's your browser history, we could call it, browser your internet history. Where do you go when no one's looking? Oh, you found a way to be private? Probably not as private as you think. Don't know. I just know that more than a few people sure hope like crazy no one notices. That's not what we're reading here about Paul. Would you look at these words? He gave them as counsel in Titus chapter 1, verse 16. He says they claim, he's talking about the Cretans, they claim to know God, but by their deeds, they deny him. They're, be, they're detestable and worthless for any good thing. Paul was the flip of that. Paul was 
basically the guy that says, uh, by my deeds, I've confirmed my claim to know God. In other words, don't just take what I say. Check out my stuff. Be believe with your own eyes. Uh, he goes on to say, it's up on the screen. I love Proverbs 10, verse 9. He who walks with integrity, she who walks with integrity, walks, can you hear this? Can you feel the steel in the spine? Walks securely. But if you pervert your way, you're, you're scared to death to hand your tablet or your computer to somebody who says, okay, I'll take you up on it. I want to look where you've been. He who walks with integrity walks securely. I got no problems. I'll sleep tonight. The one who perverts their way has a loser for them. They're going to be found out. I think we're reading that in Paul. He lived by his own advice. In Philippians, he gave great counsel. Prove yourself to be blameless and innocent children of God, above reproach in the midst of a world like ours, a crooked and perverse generation among whom you are to appear as a light in that place, in that regard. Amen? I don't know how many times I have prayed those words in Philippians over the years. I'll go into a place where I know Christians are not welcome. I say, Lord, help me to prove myself to be blameless and innocent ch child of God who lives above reproach in a crooked and perverse generation. I live in the midst, good preposition, right in the middle of it. And you and I know that here in the Northwest. So I want to live in a way that, you know, live in a way that you can sell your pet parrot to the town gossip. have nothing to worry about. Right? Um, we're being watched today. I went to lunch one time. Um, <laughs> with my mentor in California who was known by everybody. And uh, we got done having lunch and 300 conversations with everybody that came by. I don't think anybody said hi to me, but they sure said hi to Chuck, but, uh, and we left and got in the truck, his truck, and um, drove back, and I said, Chuck, you have, does, it, does, it, does it impress you or, or uh, land on you that we're being watched? I'm thinking I'm being insightful, right? He's going, yeah, a few times. <laughs> and, and you know what? If you're being watched, Peter's words... Um, they matter. First Peter 2. For those that are watching, keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that Gentiles is non-Christians, the world. Keep your behavior excellent among the Gentiles so that the things that they slander you, that's the finger pointing, say, you Christians, the things that they slander you as evildoers, they may on account of your good deeds glorify your Father day of visitation because they're watching. They will observe them and they will um, it will impact them. If something in your private life is a reproach, may I plead with you to clean it up. Say, how do I do that? The Bible talks about confession. The Bible talks about contrition. All these scriptures are at the bottom of your outline today. Confession, I, I don't want to hand my phone to anybody, okay? You need to confess that to me. I'm not handing your phone, but why don't you do that? Okay, that's confession. Contrition, God, I am so sick to death of how I've lived. I want to throw this sucker away. <laughs> that didn't fix the problem, but that's contrition. Contrition's going, ugh, that's, that's a bad part of me. And then the next piece, get accountable. Call your pastor. Call your friends. Call somebody that will look at you and say, hey, like Nathan the prophet did in 2 Samuel, you're the guy. Stop it. Okay. Um, there's so much more. Um, 
I want to give you a third one. I'll just read it to you. When Paul saw an audience, he considered it an opportunity standing there. When he saw an audience, he didn't go, oh, my gosh, what will I say? He saw it as an opportunity to stand and deliver. Jesus had told his disciples that he's going to be, there will be opportunities to share in their world. And he even prayed for them that they would share with courage. John 17 includes these words. As you've sent me into the world, he's praying. This whole chapter is really a wonderful prayer. In fact, some have called it the true Lord's Prayer. So Jesus prays from start to finish in John 17. When he was done praying, they arrested him, and he went what the next morning would be to the cross. But he says, As you sent me into the world, Father, I have sent them into the world. For them I sanctified myself, and they too, so that they may be totally or truly sanctified. My prayer is not, listen to this, is not for them alone. Who's he thinking of in those words? His disciples. Not for them alone. I also pray for all of you all who will believe in me through the years of people sharing that message. That's why that prayer is for us. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to go out on a limb and say the words that greeted us here at the beginning of Acts, chapter 1, verse 8, Jesus spoke these words just before he ascended back to heaven. And he said, I think Paul th- knew these, knew these words by, by now for sure. But I'm, I'm reasonably certain he knew all about them. And he says, you will receive, these are the last words of Jesus before He ascends back to heaven. You will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. Chapter 2, it happens. And you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, in Samaria, and everywhere else in between. Um, So it's no surprise that Paul would ask in letters that he would write later, I... um, I need courage when I stand before people. I don't want to run from them. I don't want to hide from them. I want to have the moxie it takes to courageously stand before them and tell the truth about Jesus. Um, There's great words that you're going to see right now. Um, He wrote these to the Ephesians church. I'm going to stop for a second and tell you why that's important to know. When he did eventually get to Rome, which is in just another chapter, uh, two chapters, when he arrived in Rome, he was incarcerated there as well. While he was incarcerated, he wrote four letters that are in our Bibles. They're the prison epistles, known as the prison epistles. This is one of those four. Ephesians chapter 6, right after talking about spiritual warfare, he wrote this church. He said, Pray also for me. This is Paul's words. Pray for me. And pray for me that whenever I speak, and there will be moments, that's what you and I get to look forward to, whenever I speak, that I would say it in a way that, he says it twice here, fearlessly, that I would speak fearlessly um, about what I know so that I will um, make the mystery of the gospel for which I am uh, on assignment, an ambassador, in chains. I'm, I'm, my goal is, he repeats himself, that I may declare it fearlessly as I should. All right, here's the deal. Not everyone is called to stand and speak before Governor Felix, Festus, Agrippa, even Caesar. Most of the people hearing my words right now will never have that occasion. And it's a good thing too, right? Because I looked it up again and actually the research says that 75% of people, the human race, have what's called glossophobia, which is doing what I've just done the last 40 minutes. So I'm kind of that weird 
anomaly. But most people would just as soon have their wisdom teeth pulled without noticing it uh, than stand and speak. So we're not talking. We're not, this is not a message to say, how can you and I become like apostle-like orators the way Paul was? That's not it at all. But in an attempt, um, I think this morning, to cause us to grow our courageous spirit, the Holy Spirit wants to improve, I think, our willingness to do whatever he calls us to do as we serve him. If it's speaking, then speak up. If it's serving, then serve well. Um, that's the purpose I think he has for each one of us. I'd like you to bow with me this morning. I, um, I've never heard it said better than the way the Apostle Peter stated it. And I think this includes everybody that I know about. People in this room today, people watching from other places. His words are from 1 Peter chapter 4. He says, Each of you should use whatever gift you have to serve others as faithful stewards of God's grace in its various forms. If anyone speaks... They should do so as one convinced that they are speaking the very words of God. If anyone serves, then they should do so with the strength that God supplies so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and power forever and ever. 